0: Heinrich Ludwig Gehrig. You know right off the bat, this guy's not from Scotland. Heinrich Ludwig Gehrig. He was born in 1903. His parents were German immigrants. Everybody knew him as Lou. He'd grow up in New York, and he would go on to play baseball for the New York Yankees, becoming what's been called the greatest first baseman in the history of the game. He played with the Yankees from 1923 to 1939, 17 years and it was an amazing career. You know I told you last week how it was in 1929 that the Yankees became the first team to put numbers on the back of uniforms so people could identify the players. First time to do that. Well Lou Gehrig would become the first person to have their number retired by their team. When Lou Gehrig retired, they retired number four. And it's not worn by any of the Yankees today to honor Lou Gehrig. He was that great of a player. It turned out that growing up, he was very poor. His mother and father struggled here in the United States. His father had a hard time getting a job and keeping it. His mom was a strong-willed German woman. She was determined to take care of her son. You see, she had had four children, but only one survived infancy, and that was Lou. She was determined to keep food on the table and clothes on his back to make sure that he had every opportunity. And so she took in washing and she cleaned houses to supplement her husband's income. When Lou grew up and he got out of the eighth grade, Almost all of his friends going to the same school, they went and got jobs to help support the family. But not Lou. His mom, Christina, was determined he would go to high school, he would go to college, and he was going to be an engineer. So she worked harder to make sure they had the money so that Lou could stay in high school. She wanted him to really look good. So she went out and got him some knickers. She felt those knickers kind of made him look more aristocratic. And she sent him off to school and he hated them. So he saved up his own money and bought a pair of long pants and he hid them there in the apartment building. So he would leave in the morning in his knickers and there he would go and change into his long pants, go to school, and then he came back home and he would change back into his knickers and show back up home. He did well in high school. It's where he really got into baseball, and man, they discovered he could knock the ball a mile. So much so that when he got ready to go to college, he was trying to decide where to go, just at the time that his father lost his job, and so his mom went to the one ads, and there she found a job being the house mother at a fraternity house at Columbia University. So that's the job she took, cooking, cleaning, taking care of the fraternity house there at Columbia. Lou would get a scholarship to go to Columbia. And he would also have to work all kinds of odd jobs to make ends meet, but he excelled in playing ball. So much so, he made it through his freshman year, made it into his sophomore year. At the end of his sophomore year, right there in the spring, a Yankee scout really saw him playing and thought, this guy is going to be a superstar. Superstar. And so it was, they came and offered him a contract. And Lou suddenly had a difficult decision to make. Do I go play baseball, this frivolous game with no guarantees? Or do I stay in college here at Columbia, get my degree, and become an engineer? So he went to the business school to one of his professors, and he said, here's the contract they're offering me. What do you think I should do? And His professor looked at the contract. And then he looked at his grades, then he looked at Lou and said, go play baseball. (laughs) And the Gehrig family was never poor again. He did so incredibly well, and he took care of his mom and his dad. No, they were never poor again. He would have an amazing career over the next 17 years, he was known as the Iron Man, playing 2,130 games in a row. And then something started to happen. The legs just weren't moving right. He finally was going to the doctor and they diagnosed it as ALS. You know, that's the neuromuscular disease that begins to take the movement of your legs, moves up your body to your lungs. It is fatal. It was so hard to realize what was happening. He took himself out of the lineup, breaking the streak, and he knew it was time to retire. They decided that on the 4th of July, 1939, they would let Lou Gehrig retire, and they wanted to have a Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day. He hated the idea. He was a baseball player, not a public speaker. He didn't want to be up in front of all those people. He had no need for that. But everybody kept begging, everybody wants it. So on that day, when the game was over, they lined one base path with the 1927 team of the Yankees, which to this day is considered maybe the best team in the history of baseball. And then they lined the other side with the 1939 present Yankee team. They put a microphone at home plate, standing room only in the stadium, and the MC came down front and started talking about Lou, all he'd accomplished. And they started bringing him all these gifts and setting them there at home, played at his feet. And Lou Gehrig just kept his head down, kind of rocking from foot to foot. Tears were streaming down his cheek. When it was finally all said and done, they turned and said, Would you like to say something? No, no. He turned to walk towards the dugout when all the fans began chanting, Lou, Lou, Lou. And so he stopped And came back to the microphone. And for the first time, looked up at the crowd and all the people. And then he just spoke from the heart. He had no prepared speech. it was extemporaneous from the scuff. I want to read you part of what he had to say. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. But today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it a privilege to associate yourself with such fine-looking men as are standing in uniform in the ballpark today? Sure, I'm lucky. When the groundskeepers and office staff and riders and old-timers and players and concessionaires all remember you with gifts, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you and squabbles against her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and mother who work all their lives so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dream existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying, I might have had a bad break, but I have an awful lot to live for. Thank you. It's been called the greatest retirement speech in sports history. I went back and I read it over and over again, and what really occurred to me was, when you have Lou Gehrig saying, I, I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth, And then he starts recounting all the people who love him. All the people whom he has loved. And I thought, you know, it's when you come to those most difficult moments in life. When you come to the time of your own death. What you think about is the people who love you. And the people you love. And that's why he was able to stand there and find a sense of of strength sense of hope because he was remembering, remembering those teammates, remembering those managers, remembering a mother-in-law, remembering a mom, remembering a wife. When you remember those who love you and those whom you love, it changes things. There's power in remembering. I think that's what's going on in our scripture lesson this morning. For in our scripture lesson this morning, we're reading the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's not something you read very often. And you kind of wonder, I'm sure, why in the world did I choose that? But you know, if you go look at Paul, Paul's this amazing missionary. And he travels all around places from Corinth to, to Ephesus to Philippi. He's always out traveling and he goes into these towns and life is hard and and he starts these churches from nothing. He'll go to the synagogue and preach in the synagogue and and then he'll go to preach in the Gentiles and he'll start a church. It isn't easy. He gets run out of towns. Not everybody's happy to see him. Some people try to stone him. Others want to kill him. Ultimately, he'll wind up in a prison cell in Rome. All along the way, he will write letters to try to encourage churches, to settle the squabbles, to give them direction. He writes from the prison in Rome. Most of the New Testament we have are the letters of Paul. And I think that when Paul writes all these letters and thinks about all that's going on, he always comes to the end and then takes the time to remember those who loved him and those that he loves. And I think it gives him a strength. I think it helps him deal with the difficult times because he's remembering the people who loved him, the people that he loves. You hear him going through, and I love it when he says, remember Priscilla and Aquila? They saved my neck. All the Gentile church owes them a debt of gratitude. And then he goes through this long list of people until he comes down to the end And then he says, and remember, greet Rufus. Greet Rufus. He is eminent in the Lord. That is, he is great in the Lord. And his mother and mine. In that moment, Paul becomes vulnerable. You almost see this softness in Paul. Greet Rufus, this great man in the Lord, and his mother. His mother is like a second mother to me. She's my mom, too. It's like Paul is saying, he needs a mom. Even Paul needs a mom. Someone to love him, to care for him, to worry over him. You sense that feel of I'm wanting to remember those who love me. Because when you remember that, it changes things. There's power in remembering you know, today is Mother's Day. Mother's Day is one of the most popular days in our nation. And I think for good right. You know, it's, it's grown so quickly and very easily. Because when we all stop for a moment and remember our mothers, when we remember our grandmothers or those who are like a second mother, those women who have blessed us in our lives, when you remember that love, well, it stirs something in your soul. It changes the way you feel and the way that you look at life. It seems to be the most natural of things. And so Mother's Day has grown, and I think it is appropriate. And so to all of you mothers, we simply say, thank you. Thank you for the way you have sacrificed for us. Thank you for the way you have loved us. Thank you for the way you have worried about us. You make such a difference. But I also got to tell you, I hope everybody thinks about their mother today, their grandmother, the woman who has loved them like a second mother. It doesn't matter whether they're sitting beside you today in church or whether they're in the kingdom of heaven. Their love still affects your life when you remember. And so we come today to remember. There's power in that. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Just two things I want to say. First of all, we've come together today so that we can remember the love that has been shown to us. And when you remember that love that has been shown to you, you can't help but feel a sense of gratitude. There is a spirit of gratitude that comes. When you think about those you love and those who have loved you and how they have cared, you feel a sense of gratitude. So that even if you're facing a difficult moment and a hard time, you find a strength you didn't have. I I love this speech of Lou Gehrig, standing up and saying, today I think I'm the luckiest man on the face of this earth. He was not saying, I am lucky because I have ALS. And he was not saying, I'm lucky because I know other people have it worse than me. Now, what he was saying was, I am lucky because I am loved and because I love. And that's what chose to keep him in the game. That's what changed the way that everything looked. That's why I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. You remember those who loved you, and then you feel a sense of gratitude. And if you know gratitude, even in the midst of the most difficult times, those hard nights, it changes the way that you look at life. You and I have come here on this Commitment Sunday to remember the saints on whose shoulders we stand. We remember those who have gone before us, those who have blessed us, who have given since that first Sunday after the land run, 127 years ago, we remember And when you remember what they've done, it fills you with a spirit of gratitude. It changes the way you look at things. You know, when we made the decision to to leave 8th Street, down here at 8th Street and Robinson and move out here to 15th Street and Robinson about 70 years ago, people got so excited. Everybody wanted to do their part. Everybody was excited about it and wanted to work hard. We had to buy up lots of lots right around here so we could build this building so we could have parking lots there were homes that were going to need to be moved and because everybody was so excited and thrilled right over there at 14th and Harvey there was a home and they jacked it up and put it on rollers to move and then they discovered we hadn't bought it yet (laughs) that was a detail (laughs) You know, we finally got it all worked out, but, but everybody was so excited. We're all going to do what we can. They were anxious to get on with it. It was in 1947. The couple Sunday school class voted to go out to the state fair and sell Beverly's fried chicken. Now, you know, most of the people in the couple Sunday school class are now in the kingdom of heaven. I did not know them all, but I knew many. An amazing group of people. They made the decision that they would go out there, that they would build this temporary building and go to the state fair. Beverly Osborne was a member of St. Luke's. If you've been around in Oklahoma City, you know there was chicken in the rough, which was chicken and french fries in a basket. And so he said he'd supply all the supplies, and the people would go out there and put up this temporary building, And they would then cook all the chicken and sell it, and all the money would go to the building fund to help pay for this facility. And so they went out there and they started doing it, and they would do it for 20 years. 20 years they would do it. Yes, it is worth thanking them for. They kept going and going. It was the builder's class that would pay money in 1960 to help renovate that temporary building because we were still going. And in the end, they would raise $150,000. You've got to remember the total project here cost $1.5 million. We're talking 10% of all the building costs by selling Beverly's fried chicken at the state fair. So many people worked and sacrificed and gave and did what they could. Some we know, some you don't know but I like to stop and remember. And when I remember what they did, I am filled with a spirit of gratitude. And it changes the way that you look at things. I think that's what was happening with Paul. It would be easy to focus so much on all the bad all the towns that did not want him, all the people who tried to harm him, the squabbles in the churches, it'd be easy to focus on all that. But when he focused on those that he loved and those who loved him, you can see he's filled with the spirit of gratitude and it changes the way that he looks at life. And so second, when you and I take the time to remember and And we do feel that sense of gratitude. You also begin to have a desire, a strength, to dream new dreams about the future. I find when I remember and I become grateful that it also inspires me to want to be something better, to do something more, to bless life, to be my best. Again, I I see that so much in Lou Gehrig. He comes to the end. After he recounts all these people he loves, he comes to the end and says, Yes, I've had a bad break, but I have an awful lot to live for. Lou Gehrig didn't want to quit on life in spite of the diagnosis of ALS. He didn't want to quit. He wanted to stay in the game, if you will. He wanted to still give of himself and live in a meaningful way. He could no longer play baseball. And when he retired, suddenly lots of people offered him different kinds of jobs. Oh, there were people who said, give us your name and we'll put it on a restaurant. We'll pay you 30000 Another group said, if you'll just show up at a nightclub and greet people, we will pay you. But you know what Lou Gehrig decided to do? He accepted the opportunity to sit on a state parole board. He got paid $5,000 a year. He would have made that in six weeks standing outside of a nightclub shaking hands. He wanted to do something with meaning. And the idea of working with youth, of trying to find those kids who maybe had learned a lesson, who had had something click, maybe they needed a second opportunity and he could work with them. He wanted to work on the parole board. He wanted to stay in the game. I got so much to live for in spite of those difficult moments. Moms, you are the ones who love us and encourage us and worry over us. You are the ones that inspire us to dream the dreams, to strive to be something more. Even if your mother's in the kingdom of heaven, If you remember, you go back and remember the love, it'll inspire you to do something more. I'm sure some of you have heard of Shavano Heel. He's quite a great basketball player. Most of you know him as Buddy Heal. Buddy's been playing down at OU for the last four years. He is an amazing basketball player. But I think just as significant he is really a fine human being someone who's incredibly kind caring he's a person of faith he's been extremely successful in his basketball career and there's going to be the nba draft not very far from here and it's expected he'll be one of the first few picks in the nba draft but to understand his success you need to go back and remember how it was he grew up he was born and raised in the bahamas right outside of nassau on Grand Bahama Island, and he was one of seven children. His mom became a single mom. She had to work two and three jobs to try to put food on the table. They went to go live with Buddy's grandparents. And there were other siblings and their kids. As a small house. When you went to bed at night, every inch of floor was covered with somebody sleeping. They did not have hot water. You had to get up and heat hot water on the stove if you were going to take a a hot bath. No, his mom had to work so hard and she did two and three jobs in order to keep food on the table, to keep clothes on their back. They did not have new clothes. No, you wore whatever clothes were available. It didn't even necessarily mean they were going to fit. It was hard. But his mother always said to the kids, look, we don't have a lot, but we have enough. We don't have a lot, but we have enough. And Buddy believed her. He understood. we got food on the table and a roof over our head, clothes on our back. It's enough. And it was enough because they had family, a family that laughed. A family that liked each other, that loved each other. A mother who would sit down and teach them the Bible, help them to grow in their faith, keep them on the right direction. No, they were a family of love and faith. And yes, we don't have a lot, but we have enough. In a young age, he understood what it meant to be grateful for that kind of love. And when you feel grateful for that kind of love, It changes things and he felt inspired to to try to dream great dreams. His dream was to come to the United States and play basketball to college. His dream was to ultimately play in the NBA. And of course everybody said, that's impossible, that's nuts. Everybody except his mom. And Buddy didn't just have a dream, Buddy was willing to work hard. He worked harder than anybody at trying to develop his skills From the time he was 12 on, he played and played. He'd go every year to a a basketball showcase to showcase their talents. Scouts would come. And it was in 2010 that a scout from Sunrise Christian Academy in Wichita, Kansas, saw him playing and saw, this guy is good. And not only is good, he had what he called a Bahamian swagger. And that meant he had this incredible smile. He loved a smile, and he loved the way that he interacted with the players, the way that he was interacting there with the fans. There was something about that spirit and that smile. And so they decided to give him a scholarship. He came as a junior to Sunrise Christian Academy in Wichita, Kansas, and there he worked so hard. He was the first one at the gym, the last one to leave. There were times they finally locked up the basketballs to say, "'Enough is enough.'" It's there that the scouts from OU first saw him, and they brought him to Norman. And it's been great fun to watch this young man growing up over the last four years. I mean, last year in his junior year, he became the Big 12 Player of the Year. This year, he was second by three votes, being the AP National Player of the Year. He led his team to the Final Four, and as I said, he's now about to be drafted into the NBA. And he's going to have enough, but I don't think it's going to go to his head because he's understood for a long time, we don't have a lot, but we have enough. And I read an interview with him as he was talking about his career so far, and it was a fascinating interview, and the things he was saying, first of all, was, I'm so grateful to my coaches, I'm so grateful to my teammates, but most of all, I said, I'm so grateful to my mom. He said, when I look back at the Bahamas, I see other players who really had more talent than I had, other players who were better than I was. But what they didn't have was a mom who encouraged them and loved them and believed in them. Moms, you make such a difference. By the way, you love us and believe in us and worry about us and encourage us. When we stop and remember, you can't help but be grateful and it inspires you to want to dream and be something more. After Lou Gehrig retired, a reporter went to his home to interview him, and he was looking at all the memorabilia and pictures along the wall. And there on the wall, there was a picture from a 1927 World Series when Lou Gehrig was rounding third and heading for home. And there he got tagged out. And the reporter said, why in the world do you have a picture of you being tagged out at home in the World Series? And Lou explained, well, you know, when Combs came to bat, he got a single. And then Caning got up and he beat out a hit. And then Babe Ruth came up and he hit a towering shot that never got out of the infield. And he was out. And Gary came up and he had a shot out into the outfield. And he said, I was rounding first and I was digging for second. I came around second, was heading for third. And the coach was waving me on. He said, I rounded third and headed for home. And when I got there, the catcher had the ball and I was out. But I did think about the fact, I drove in two runs. I drove in two runs. I made a difference. No, it reminds me, things don't always work out the way you hope. But you still make a difference. You stay in the game. You get to come to bat again. You keep on playing. As a family of faith on this day, you and I remember the saints on whose shoulders we stand. And we give thanks. And we dream great dreams. As a family of faith, we're still in the game. Given our best, given our dreams, we are rounding third and heading for home. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.